The IRS just wrapped up another extended filing season. Now it's gearing up for a big hiring initiative. The agency is feeling pressure to answer more taxpayers' phone calls and get tougher on tax cheats. But it's also trying to get ahead of a workforce retirement wave that's on the horizon. The Biden administration is pushing for more funding for the IRS, but that plan is facing a tough sell in Congress. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory, tell us more about this hiring spree that the IRS is trying to initiate here. Are they going to, as uh, Thomas Jefferson said, send hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance, or do they have something else in mind? That's a rather Baroque way to put it, but (laughs) the main thrust of what we're talking about here is a pretty sizable increase and a sustained steady increase over a period of years. The Biden administration put a little more focus on this plan just last week. The Treasury Department released a report saying that they would like to see the IRS workforce increase by a maximum of 15% each year for the next 10 years. And the focus here would be on hiring enforcement and taxpayer service personnel. And the other key pillar of this plan is that the IRS would see its budget increase by about 10% year over year. And just to give you some context here, Tom, we're talking about an agency that since 2010 has seen its budget cut by about 20%. That's about a billion dollars a year in terms of real dollars and a workforce that has shrunk by about 33,000 employees. And just let me make sure I heard you right. They want 15% increase in the employee count for each of the next 10 years. They want to have the agency double and then half double again? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a sizable increase, but that's what we're talking about here. Well, they can ask for it, I guess. And uh, what's the reason behind the surge right now? There are no shortage of reasons that the IRS and the administration are calling for this kind of workforce surge. One of them being that we just saw the IRS wrap up a another extended tax filing season that ended on May 17th. And we just got some numbers from the National Taxpayer Advocate. And the numbers, while they haven't been great in recent years, have been really hard, uh, especially with this year. The IRS got about 82 million calls on one of its most frequently used toll-free numbers for for individual income tax help. And of those 82 million calls, Less than 3% of callers got through to a real person, a customer service representative, on the other end of the line. And these are numbers that are as of May 1st. The other reason is that the IRS is facing more pressure to shrink a growing tax gap. IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick recently said that that could be unofficially getting close to $1 trillion a year. But even some of the more conservative estimates are north of $500 billion a year. So a lot of pressure there to shrink that gap. And just more realistically, we were talking about how big of a workforce increase this would be. The simple fact of the matter is the IRS is dealing with a, a an old workforce that one day is going to retire. And Reddick did give an estimate of, of just how soon that's going to be coming down the pike. He said that 52,000 IRS employees are expected to retire or leave the agency over the next six years. And again, just a level set here, this is an agency that has 83,000 employees. So we're talking about the agency seeing more than half of its workforce retiring here. You know, we hear a ton about retirement waves in the federal workforce writ large, but Reddick did kind of handicap these numbers a little bit. He said that these are numbers that are like the real figure of what he's talking about here. It takes into account that the average IRS employee keeps working five years after the retirement eligible. And this is Reddick speaking to the Senate Appropriations Committee's Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government. It will take time to overcome the challenges of the past. And the agency will continue to struggle 
to replace more than 50,000 workers lost through attrition over the next six years. And as for the challenge of getting new employees on board, it's not that people don't want to work for the IRS. It's just that it's a common problem for the federal workforce that the onboarding process, the hiring process is pretty long. And we heard as much from national taxpayer advocate Aaron Collins speaking at that same committee hearing. The IRS hiring process is a little slow. Um, and as a result, I think we lose good talent because if the process takes three to six months before we make a commitment and make you an offer, you probably have had four or five offers somewhere else. And thank you very much, IRS. Have a nice day. So that is a real challenge. Again, Aaron Collins, national taxpayer advocate. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. If the IRS had this larger workforce, then what would it specifically do? Well, it would do a lot of what we just described. It would boost up that level of service on the phone. It would go after tax cheats. It would namely shrink this tax gap that, again, is is growing by most estimates here. And it would do that by upscaling the workforce. It would be getting more enforcement personnel on the job. And Reddick said that the IRS could effectively shrink this tax gap by about 10 to 20 percent over the next 10 years and recoup about $700 billion. And so, you know, this is a big ask in terms of resources, in terms of uh, budget and, and workforce. But Reddick is essentially saying that the IRS would have a strong return on investment. That's a great ask. And the Biden administration is going to ask for it. We'll probably know more on Friday when the budget comes out. What about Congress? Is the response positive there or is it divided on party lines? What have you seen? Well, there has been some skepticism specifically from the subcommittee. The ranking member, Cindy Hyde-Smith, revisited the fact that the IRS has gotten $3 billion in supplemental funding over the past 14 months uh, under the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, a lot of that money is going towards new programs that the IRS has not had to deal with before, these economic impact payments, the expansion of child tax credits, and making a certain amount of unemployment insurance tax exempt. But Senator Hyde-Smith pointed out that the IRS has had uh, a checkered past with its IT modernization. That's a project that's still ongoing. And what she was particularly critical is the fact that there is money that the Congress has appropriated for enforcement that the, the IRS has then taken and added to its IT modernization budget. And so on that particular point, she was really critical of the IRS. Congress originally designated these funds to beef up the IRS enforcement ranks. Unfortunately, we have seen the IRS repeatedly call attention to the tax gap and then divert the funds somewhere else. And that's Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith. Reddick, in response to that, says he's, of course, you know, loathe to do that, to take this funding that's meant for enforcement and add it to its IT operations. But he did point out that legacy IT is a very expensive line item for the agency, that that is north of $1 billion annually just to keep up with the stuff that they already have plugged in. And he also pointed out that Congress, for their end of things, they've only appropriated about half of the funding that the agency has requested for IT modernization. And this is, again, a project that is six, seven billion dollars overall uh, in scope here. And so to keep this modernization on schedule, Reddick said that it, it's had to do this uncomfortable thing, pull money from elsewhere in the agency. Sometimes that's enforcement and add that to the IT modernization budget. Well, to some extent, aren't they talking at cross purposes? Because a lot of the object of modernization is one to be able to answer the phone calls and maybe 
have artificial intelligence answer a lot of the calls and all that kind of stuff. But at the other end of the spectrum, a lot of this modernization can help enforcement because you can, by computer, read all of the incoming information. The IRS gets the documentation it needs to calculate tax returns anyway. The question is why they even have people calculate their own returns. And so did Reddick make the connection between modernization and the ability to enforce the tax code? I mean, that seems to be the missing piece here. He did. And the thing to really keep in mind here is that all of these things that we're talking about are interconnected. We also heard from another IRS commissioner, a former one, Charles Rosati, and he said that you know the IRS's current way of doing audits, it's, it's awfully inefficient. There are a significant percentage of those that the IRS goes through the entire audit process, and there's they call them no-change audits, where the IRS determines the auditee doesn't owe the agency any additional tax revenue, and so that's a very inefficient process. You know, another thing that's worth pointing out here is in talking about this tax gap, this isn't just tax cheats. A lot of times, these are people who aren't sure what they owe. They're trying to get through to the IRS and ask, hey, what do I owe? And they can't get through to the phone. And so that is another piece of this tax gap. People legitimately trying to pay what they owe, but they're just having a hard time getting through to the agency. And of course, Congress writes the tax code, and that's where all the problems really start. And that's out of the IRS's control and out of taxpayers' control. So I don't know. I think this merry-go-round is going to keep spinning for a while. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. 
So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision 
despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.